Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're continuing our coverage of VRT by recapping pages 192 through 217 of the 1994 Orb Edition. Last time, we said that we were going to have a few announcements coming up, and this episode, we have the first of them. Uh, We're very excited to let you know what the winners were of the vote that we held to cover some extra bonus episodes on Patreon. Glenn and I will be covering Mountains Like Mice from the collection Young Wolf. This story was suggested to us by Mark Garamini uh, while we were covering Operationaries when he joined us for our wrap-up conversation. I've been really excited to cover this story for a long time now, so I was delighted that this is the one that, that won that vote, though of course we only put things on there that we would have been excited to cover in any event. And we've got two more that we're going to do in addition to that one. Valerie and I are going to cover the Star Trek The Next Generation episode, Q Who, which in addition to being one of the great Q episodes everybody loves, John Delancey, this is the first episode in which we meet the Borg. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And then Brandon and Valerie are going to cover a short story by Douglas Adams. This story is called Young Zaphod Plays It Safe. Uh, this is a short story in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy universe. It's the, the only short story that Douglas Adams ever wrote in this universe. I think that'll be a lot of fun. All of these episodes will be available by the time you, our listeners, are hearing this because we record in the past and you live in the future. <laughs> Yeah, that's how time works for us. So we've got a huge chunk of story to cover here tonight. Brandon, what was your reaction to this section? This is a fantastic section of the story. And the way we cover stories in the in the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, we're only reading them kind of a chunk at a time. And, and this is my first time through this. And I have to say, after every section we've covered, I've wanted to continue on reading and this section is no different. So much is revealed to us in this section about the past novellas, about the prisoner uh, 143, whose records we're going through as readers, and about this bug in the brain of the investigating officer who's beginning to notice these differences bet- between the journal of John Marsh and the prisoner. And And there's so much here. I just wanted to race to the end of the story, but I had to hold back because uh, I have to wait to read that for next week. Yeah, we're still going to have two more sections after this. This is uh, the longest novella in the collection. It's really almost twice as long as the others. And so it feels like at this point that we should be closer to the end of this story than we actually are. But we are getting there. We're going to get much closer to it tonight. This episode, we're going to get three parts of The Marsh Files. We'll start with some more of Dr. Marsh's St. Anne Journal, And then we'll get quite a bit of the audio recordings of Dr. Marsh's interrogation on San Croix. And then at the very end, we're going to get just a a really small bit of his prison journal as well. The St. Anne Journal begins on March 22nd, the day after Dr. Marsh's first meeting with Trenchard. This is the account of his journey to the sacred sites of the Anise with Trenchard and his son, VRT, or Victor Trenchard, if you prefer. And Dr. Marsh brings with him two things— The first is a shotgun, because he's interested in shooting some waterfowl to eat. And the second is his tape recorder, so that he can record his conversations with the Trenchards. And there is a a very important note here. Yesterday, he had forgotten this recorder. And so the journal entry that narrates his first meeting with the Trenchards is not perfect. But he says that it is true and correct to the best of his memory, and was written immediately after the event... Uh, But he can promise no more than that. And we should recall here that contrary to this admission of an imperfect recall, the Dr. Marsh who is writing in the dungeon of the Citadel claims to have an eidetic memory all the way back to his childhood. And this might be yet another clue that these two Dr. Marshes are not, in fact, the same person. I'm going to be pointing out several instances of these types of paradoxes and contradiction as we go through this section of the story today. But I just want to emphasize along with you, Glenn, that that's something we don't need to go into a lot of detail of, but it's something crucial to highlight and point out as you're reading the story. As we discussed in our last discussion, one of the questions we had was, why is Wolf using this technique to relay the story to us? And this is one of the best examples, and there are several more very good ones in the section of why, as you pointed out, the investigating officer it has this intuition that is slowly coming in to focus, and we get to watch that happen as the story continues. 
Yeah, this is a, a great little tease. And then it's just taken away from us as we get into the extraordinarily interesting journey that he's going to go on here with the Trenchards. The Trenchards take Dr. Marsh out in their boat, which is a, a, a rowboat. So they're going to row the whole distance, uh, this sightseeing tour. And Marsh does appreciate the beauty of his first glimpse of the incredible greenness and openness of the Meadowmere. And he even thinks of it as truly a, a paradise, the true paradise of the Anis. Overhead, they see a, a silvery object, no bigger than a blown leaf. It is a shark-shaped military aircraft, perhaps a mile and a half long, with tiny dots along the side that Marsh thinks might be laser muzzles or observation ports or both. And Trenchard instructs Marsh not to wave, and, and then he issues some inaudible command to his son in French. And the picture of this is pretty awesome. There, there seems to be a, a real danger here, something sinister about this military aircraft on patrol. But this is also one of the few glimpses that we get at the, the sci-fi-ness of this world, where we don't see lasers and mile-long aircraft again. And it has a very different feel from the Gilded Age social setting of, of San Qua. And I really like the way that Wolf blends these things together. At this point, Wolf is doing a lot of world building to, re to reveal the nature of the prisoner's imprisonment and the types of conflict that exists between San Anne and San Qua. And Wolf is doing an expert job of drawing our attention to the military industrial complex on this planet. This is the second mention of military vehicles. The first is the hovercrafts that Marsh wishes he could have used to go upriver. And we'll see this section packed with concerns about the military on St. Anne as we go along. I also want to point out that uh, it's once again emphasized to us how good of a hunter Dr. Marsh is. He brings a gun with him for this expedition, and he kills three reed hens with it for the lunch. And that's going to come up a little bit later. I'm starting to suspect that Guns and hunting are something that are just completely outlawed on Earth, and that that's why Dr. Marsh is so excited to be able to do these activities here on, on St. Anne. I mean, he's just so enthusiastic ab about it. Well, let's talk now about what they actually are going to show Dr. Marsh on this sightseeing tour. Uh, first up is the ocean itself, which Trenchard claims was a sacred object in the Annie's religion. And this is something that we spent a lot of time on in a story. Near the mouth of the Tempest, they land, and there is a, a stone marker there with an inscription in French that claims that this was the spot of the first humans to reach St. Anne. Uh, they had splashed down 25 kilometers out to sea and then landed their inflatable boats here on this beach. And this is presented very differently in a story where the arrival of the humans from space to this spot seems to take only a matter of minutes and where the landing craft are visible from the shore. So that's very different. I'm not going to go into a lot of the differences of what we get here compared to a story by John V. Marsh. I'm going to save a lot of that for the discussion where we're going to look at some of the ways in which Wolf could be rewriting the past of this story that we got before reading VRT. And it's fascinating. So much of this river journey shows up in a story by John V. Marsh, and it's just fantastic. One of the descriptions I love in this section is Marsh's experience of the alien beach. And I just want to read what he writes. He says, the sand was littered everywhere with seashells, with something alien about them all, so that I believe that even if I had found one on a terrestrial beach, I would have known that it had never been washed up by any ocean of Earth's. That's one of the best descriptions of this encounter with the alien and incomprehensible uh, that I've seen in science fiction or weird fiction, as we know, Wolf is a fan of. If you compare something like this to a writer like Lovecraft or even, you know, Clark Ashton Smith in some ways, there's a lot of challenges in those writers to describe the real emotional encounter with these objects. But Wolf is able to give us like this specific sense of what it's like to encounter something alien. And that really just jumped out to me as I was reading this story. And I think it's fair to say that Trenchard notices the response that Marsh is having because 
he uses this opportunity now to tell the story of how the, the Frenchman found an abo man floating face down in the ocean, having been beaten to death with scourges of these little shells. So he's really selling the, the alienness and the significance of these shells. Right. My sense of Trenchard here as we continue along is that he's a brilliant confabulator. And I don't know if anything that he says is the truth. That's going to be a huge thing we're going to have to talk about in our, our wrap-up episodes. It, it, he even goes on here to to tell Dr. Marsh the story of Eastwind, who is a great ancestor of Trenchard's. And Eastwind is this person who came down to make peace with the French, which is not quite what we get in a story, but you can see the connection there. And, and Trenchard knows that many discount the veracity of this story. And of course, everyone knows that the records of that first ship, that first human ship to arrive at St. Anne, were destroyed in the fusing of the town of Saint-Dizier, which uh, I presume to mean that it was destroyed during the war between the English speakers and the, the French speakers. Some kind of uh, town-busting laser or possibly nuclear weapons or something like that. Uh, but Trenchard maintains that when he was younger... He talked to an old man who knew one of the first French explorers, and that guy told the other guy about this, and now Trenchard knows about it. It's uh, not really the most credible source. No, it's definitely not. And Trenchard here is just playing to the crowd, and it's fantastic. I, As I've said before, I just love Wolf's affinity for con artists and scoundrels, and he's written, I think, his best in this story. I think in every Wolf novel, there's a, a realization that readers have in which it dawns on them that although Wolf perhaps really enjoys writing novels and uh, editing plant engineering, he really just wanted to be a con man if that was something he could do. <laughs> that was my dream when I was a child. So I can relate to it at least. Well, I think the only solution is to write novels about con men. That's what Wolf did. Right, right. Well, one more thing we should say here before we move on is that the Trenchards also show Dr. Marsh a sinkhole uh, in the beach, and which they call the hourglass. It's impossible to climb out of because of the, the nature of the sand. And, and this, again, is just like the sinkhole in a story. What I love about the names we get here, you mentioned Eastwind and now the hourglass, is that they have this real mythical sense to them. In a story by John V. Marsh, we know Eastwind is named John Eastwind because all men are named John. Here, this is just the Eastwind, which has this really mythical sense to it. Like it's just somebody who could be named for a physical phenomenon, the same way Apollo's chariots carry the sun across the sky. We have this mythology where the hero's name is the East Wind, and that could just speak to the importance of some of the weather patterns on this planet in some way, how crucial it is how crucial it is to the survival of these people. And with the hourglass, we have this pit in the sand on the landing beach that is another reference to time. The river is Tempest. So just, I love the way Wolf is bringing all of these things together. I think it's phenomenal. And this sinkhole is obviously called the hourglass because this the sand is the problem here. So the sand is kind of constantly flowing into it like uh, in an hourglass. And it is brilliant the way that all of these names work together. And I would like to meet the first French explorer who was giving these names to all of these places and uh, and shake that person's hand. Right. It could be that they discovered this pit first and called it the hourglass. And because the river's right there they decided to call that time, Tempest. So it adds to the sense of discovery of the first explorers on this planet as well. It's all a lot better than Johnson's Creek. Well, they finish up here on the beach and, and they take the boat to another location where Dr. Marsh shoots those three reed hens to eat for dinner that you mentioned earlier, Brandon. And this is the, the first instance that we get of his hunting. And here, VRT acts as his retriever and he swims almost like a seal uh, to go catch the wounded birds. And VRT even claims that he sometimes can catch birds by swimming beneath them and grabbing their feet. Uh, another thing that we've encountered already in a story. Right. Wolf is having Marsh think about a retriever or a seal, but we know in a story that it's an otter. So I just love the obscuring, the slight opacity uh, that occurs between the animals wolf references here and the story we get uh, written by, as I think, the prisoner 
143. You're just not going to see seals high up the river. And that's the sort of mistake you would notice when you're revising your first draft and correct in your second draft. Well, next up is the temple of sycamore trees that we also saw in a story. All but a few of them have been cut down by the settlers to use for construction purposes. There were 402 of them, one for each day of St. Anne's year, and they form a circle of about three miles in diameter, which is massive. It means that this tree temple uh, covers about the the area of uh, Philadelphia, of central Philadelphia. The trunks themselves were 12 feet thick, with branches extending out about 50 feet or so. And, and this is a lot of wood. The, these trees then would be enough to build both uh, Lafange and Frenchman's Landing. And some scholars have argued that this huge ring of trees is a natural phenomenon. But now that Dr. Marsh sees it, he thinks that that is absolutely absurd. It was clearly the result of intelligent planting. Moreover, he believes that the planting predated the first French ship by at least a century. He's calculated the average age of four trees by looking at the rings in their stumps, and he finds that they were cut down when they were around 127 Annie's years old. Uh, but Marsh is making a massive assumption here that I do not think stands up to scrutiny, and I'm looking forward to getting into this in the discussion episode. Yeah, it feels to me like a lot of a story by John V. Marsh is caught up with refuting this claim and another claim made by Trenchard that the Annies, that the Abos, did not have a sophisticated sense of astrology. This was merely their calendar. We'll get into this more in the discussion episode, but it, it's fair to say that Dr. Marsh's imagination and, and his heart rate are, are racing at this point on their, their tour. They travel a little further up the river to look at a stone outcrop. Trenchard claims that this once was in the form of a seated man, though now it is weathered and worn away, and so it's just kind of a rock. There's a local superstition that any indecent acts committed in the lap of this statue are invisible to God. And Trenchard claims that this belief originates with the Abos, but his son says it's not true. As they head back to Frenchman's Landing, Dr. Marsh reflects on the rumors of the sacred cave a hundred miles up the Tempest. He hopes that it will turn out to be something like the prehistoric caves discovered in Spain and France, and that he'll find Annie's bones there, and, and these would be the first such finds. And it's at this moment that he begins to make plans for his expedition, some of which we've already encountered in his journal. Marsh is kind of shocked that no scientists on St. Anne have gone in search of the bones of the original Abos, especially as the rumor of this cave persists down through generations. He suspects that the scientists haven't been able to find bones because the meadow mirrors are so quick to decompose anything in their path. It's also hard to dig in muck and discover or uncover any evidence of the past. But Marsh hopes that in the cave, a bone would be preserved. It's strange to me that Marsh is the first person on St. Anne who thinks like a scientist and would try to go and uncover some of this, these rumors of the past. And we get that in some of Marsh's arrogance toward the scientific community on St. Anne and the, the state of them. But I'm not sure that it's a, it's a very fair claim to make. We've learned in the past that Marsh is not an especially celebrated anthropologist. He knows very little about his field and what it takes to be an anthropologist in the world. And so his attacks on the scientific community in general feel to me very ill-informed. And so it calls, it continues to call in the question whether or not the Abos ever existed at all. I have to wonder what the anthropologists on St. Anne at the university and the museum in Roncevaux think about Dr. Marsh, this young man who's just finished his PhD with no prior field experience, showing up here to uh, demonstrate that they haven't done their due diligence, that they haven't, uh, that they've been neglectful in their search for the abos. I can just imagine some senior full professor of the Department of Anthropology at the University of Roncevaux saying, no, we really have done all of this work. There's nothing there to find. 
but you know, knock yourself out. We're happy to have Columbia's money being spent here. Right. And they're also saying, we know everything's a fraud, uh, but it helps tourist dollars. And as you've seen, it's pretty lousy here. <laughs> right. There's, there's two, two professors are being funded by the, uh, the revenue they get from the museum. So that's why they buy all these artifacts from Trenchard. Exactly. All right. Well, the, the last bit of the, the St. Anne Journal that we'll get in this episode is a transcription of a conversation that Dr. Marsh had with the Trenchards as they rode back to Frenchman's Landing at the end of their tour. They talk about the Trenchard family and their history. And we learn that Madame Trenchard, uh, VRT's mother, didn't die. She's not dead. She just left them. And VRT thinks that she is in the back of beyond. And he explains how he and his mother used to live out there as the free people did in the summertime when he was a child. And Trenchard remembers her differently. Uh, He recalls her as a useless woman who couldn't even cook. Uh, And even just talking about her, he he spits at the, the thought of her. But VRT defends her by saying that they used to swim together and uh, presumably they would hunt uh, the birds while they were doing that. Both of the Trenchards talk about the mother as being an extraordinarily talented actress. It was she who taught VRT to behave like an abo. And Trenchard describes her ability to convince a man that she was a virginal teenager, just barely done with school, but then, if she didn't like him, transform herself into an old woman. And he says that this was a matter of the voice and the muscles in her face and her walk and the way that she would hold her hands. And VRT remembers this too, when he says that everything about her transformed in these instances. And all of this suggests something about Madame Trenchard that we've already inferred but haven't dwelled on. VRT is described as being half abo because his father, Trenchard, claims to be an abo, while his mother is a perfectly normal human. Uh, but in our last episode, Brandon, you, you even lost sight of this fact because there are so many hints that it's VRT's mother who might actually be an abo and that Trenchard himself is perhaps unaware of it, though VRT is not. That's exactly right. I, I think it's explicit in this section that it, it is VRT's mother who is the abo, at least in, in VRT's mind, though Trenchard may know better. He may know something different. Trenchard is exposed to be a fraud in this section of the story, uh, and that's explicit in the text, but we have the logical problem of his son also uh, saying that he's half abo, and that really just leaves the only possibility that it's the mother, and it wasn't as clear in this story up until this point where the kind of logic is laid out on the page. I want to point out here some uses of language that that Wolf is employing in this story. One thing I want to point out is that VRT is the one who calls the abos the free people. And this is, again, something that's going to come up later in our coverage of this section. The other things I want to point out here is evidence to me that Richard Trenchard is a confabulator, a con artist, uh, an expert at reading people and telling them the things they want to hear. The main evidence for this, though it comes up all over the place in the section, is Trenchard's willingness to continue the ruse of being an abo based on how the conversation is going. He only brings up things that would be meaningful in a tourist conversation. So when they're talking about swimming, Richard Trenchard says, We abos all swim well, doctor. I could myself before I grew old. And it's just this kind of pathology. It's a pathology that Trenchard has. He can't help himself from embellishing and making claims, even though, as Marsh claims, they both know Trenchard is a fraud. He's he's an absolutely brilliant storyteller, and we get this picture of him and his wife as being these con artists together in some way. Uh, It's unfortunate that they couldn't find a gig doing uh, uh, dinner theater murder mysteries, because I think that they would have been absolutely amazing at it, the pair of them, and perhaps uh, their home might not have been broken. One other thing I want to comment on about this section of the conversation is that we were speculating in our last episode that there's some sense in which VRT is actually the one who's out on a hero's journey, not Dr. Marsh. And we are 
getting some reinforcement of that here when we learn that he thinks that his mother is out in the back of beyond and he clearly loves and misses his mother. And I speculate here that that's really what he is out there for. Right. I think that's an excellent motivation for the hero's journey. And at this point, we're witnessing the abuse of his father. He calls him an imbecile and uh, mentally retarded. And this character, Trenchard, is a despicable human being. And we see the way his attitude toward his son shifts based on how Marsh is interacting with him or how Marsh responds to the type of abuse he levels at VRT change based on Marsh's reaction. And so this child is growing up in an absolutely abusive home. And I think that's obvious through the dialogue here. And we learned before that in April, he gets his opportunity to escape. He gets the inciting incident of his hero's journey. And this reading of that detail is going to come back uh, when we get to the the next section that we're covering. But before we get there, there's just a little bit more to this conversation uh, that we need to talk about. Uh, First, uh, Trenchard tells us that he and his wife were married in the church of uh, St. Madeline. And uh, this, of course, is the French way of pronouncing Magdalene, as in Mary Magdalene from the Gospels. And so this is the introduction of yet another character from the Gospels in the, the naming patterns of these two planets. And Trenchard goes on to tell Dr. Marsh that uh, the Abos were not a uniform group, but in fact were many different peoples. And the free people whom VRT uh, talks about are definitely not the people of the Meadowmeres. And it seems that by free people, he means the, the hill people from a story. Right. And this is another example of Trenchard perhaps confabulating some information because he has to cover up his son's contradiction of these stories. VRT is the one who says that they were not the same people. Trenchard responds with an explanation of why they're not the same people and why he has to pretend they're the same people and why the French, when they landed, look at them as all the same people. And it's, again, another brilliant example of Trenchard's treachery in this story. Well, that is, that's all we're going to get of Trenchard in this episode, but I really love this character, so I hope that this is not the last that we're actually going to, to see of him. Uh, but we're going to come now to the intrusion of the frame narrative. The prostitute Casilla has finished with the major, and so she has now come to visit our officer. And the gist of this scene is that the officer wants to have sex with her, but He also has a deadline to meet, and so he's going to play one of the interrogation tapes so that he can listen to it while the two of them have sex. Yeah, once again, we're being introduced to the just awful nature of this public official who's not maybe voted in, but he has a duty to the people, to his government, and this is what he's doing at work. And I think it's just it's just absolutely terrible. This person is terrible whose mind we're supposed to be inhabiting as we're covering all of these documents. One thing I do want to point out, the last paragraph that closes the section we just covered is Marsh's doubt in his whole project. The notion that the Abos were not one uniform group of people actually suits him because he's heard so many contradicting reports. Nobody's seen the same type of creature more than once. Everything is out out of control. It's all crazy in terms of the information he's getting, the research he's doing, that this is a comfortable narrative for him to now engage with. And so this is just confirmation bias. He's saying, that's a theory that is going to confirm what I need to believe in order to prove that the Abos were a real people and not just pure myth, as he says. And I think that that's a really great addition to this section. It's a convenient way for him to explain away discrepancies and inconsistencies by saying, ah, well, the stories aren't all describing the same thing. Therefore, showing that there are all these contradictions is not good evidence for disproving the existence of the Abos at all. Uh, He's having his cake and eating it too. Right. Even though he knows and admits that he's desperate enough for any information that he's willing to go on this uh, con, this this tour with this con man to get any information possible about the Abos. 
Well, I'm looking forward to revisiting all of this in the the discussion episode. But I'll, I think at this point, let's let's get into this interrogation. Uh, we're actually going to get two different interviews here, which are interrupted by a short cutscene with the officer and the prostitute. In the first of these conversations, it is clear that Dr. Marsh still hasn't been charged with a crime, and, and he's not sure what it is even the police want to know from him. The questions are largely about his identity, his profession, and his provenance. Uh, we learn from the nature of the questions that there is open political hostility between St. Croix and St. Anne, and that there may uh, be a war looming on the horizon. And the police suspect that Dr. Marsh might actually be from St. Anne, even though his papers are from Earth, and that he might be a spy. But we also learned that they think Dr. Marsh killed someone, though not in a premeditated way. And I think it's fair to say that we both suspect that this person he is suspected of killing is going to be the, the master of the Maison du Chien. At this point in the story, that's the only assumption we can make. Though, as we get further along, more is called into question about who exactly was murdered. And that will come up as we continue our recap. This idea that war is brewing, that the prisoner is being treated as though he's guilty and so that everything he says and does is going to be a premise that leads to the conclusion that's been preformed before he was arrested is an absolute nightmare. Here's where we see uh, Marsh's hostility towards the scientists on St. Anne and the response when they ask, are there no anthropologists on St. Anne when he says no good ones, the interrogator asks him if it is his opinion that the political situation vis-a-vis the sister planet is such that your hostility to it will buy your freedom. What a nightmare. There's nothing he can say that isn't being read into because they're starting with the presumption of guilt. And this is another example of Wolf really looking at a political system that doesn't, a political or judicial system that doesn't assume innocence and the dangers of starting with a conclusion without having the right premises that lead to it. I just think it's brilliant writing. It's absolutely a no win situation for Dr. Marsh. And the only real recourse he has is going to be to try to make his stay here in the Citadel dungeon as comfortable as possible. And we're going to see him doing a little bit of that uh, throughout these two interviews, and then also in the bit of his uh, prison journal uh, that we'll get at the very end. There's also quite a lot in this interrogation that we're going to read through in the discussion. So uh, fear not, <laughs> brave listeners, we're not skipping over too much of this. Yeah, there's there's more going on in this conversation than just these establishments of, of details and facts. Uh, Dr. Marsh is twice given a cigarette by his interrogator, who also offers him the flame from his lighter, but never actually lets Marsh use the lighter himself. And of course, this is very reminiscent of VRT's refusal to use a lighter to ignite the campfires on the St. Anne expedition. Well, we also learn here that uh, Celestine Etienne still hasn't been to visit Dr. Marsh, which he assumes is because she has been prevented from doing so. But his interrogator says that that's not true, that they would never do that. They would never prevent her from seeing him if she had asked. It is true, though, that they might warn her that coming to visit him would meet with unpleasant consequences. But but definitely, if she really insisted, they would let her see him. Uh, so this is a, a very strict definition of prevent here. Right. This government are masters of propaganda, manipulation of language, and a whole host of other things. This is a big question that we'll be diving into in our discussion. Yeah, so far, this is the the real nightmare of, of any thinking person. Uh, and along these lines, we, we get now a, a monologue from the interrogator about how awesome the San Juan government is. And uh, I'm just going to read some of it. I have told you that I am not here to answer your questions. To answer would imply that we conceded some slight possibility of truth to your assertions of innocence. And we do not concede that. Truth is something which is to be had from us, not from you. Ours is the most remarkable government in the history of mankind. 
because we, and only we, have accepted as a working principle what every sage has taught and every government has feigned to accept, the power of the truth. And because we do, we rule as no other government has ever ruled. I mean, this is like straight out of 1984. And he returns to this idea again on the next page. So I'll just read this too before you have a chance to comment here, Brandon. We are the only government upon whose word every man may rely absolutely. And because of that, we command infinite credit, infinite obedience, infinite respect. If we say to anyone, do this and your reward will be such and such, there is no doubt in his mind that he will be rewarded. If we say villages breaking a certain ordinance will be burned to the ground, there is no doubt. We speak little, but every word drops like a weight of iron. So he's, he's talking about a, a really terrifying police state here. It's funny that you say terrifying, because my main note on this section, apart from what we'll get into in the discussion, is just the word terrifying. This is <laughs> absolutely horrific. You just can't imagine living under such a rule. And, and, and we've seen, especially in the fifth head of Cerberus, the first novella of this novel, of this trilogy of novellas, that the law is ignored and avoided by most people because it's really run by a system of bribes and corruption. And we see something similar take place with the way the laws are described to uh, this prisoner's landlady, which no person in their right mind would follow all of those rules. All of the rules in this law system are designed to give any reason for condemnation and imprisonment for any citizen. But the smart citizens live in total by totally ignoring these rules, knowing that the consequences could be whatever they may be, because it doesn't matter if they do follow the rules or not. The system is designed to entrap them. And therefore, there's always a pretext for clamping down on somebody for the enforcement of these rules. So you have to be living in some bit of terror all the time. And and this explains one of the first things that we learn about Maitre in the opening paragraphs of The Fifth Head of Cerberus, which is that he has to have a special relationship with the secret police, but that he also has to be willing to allow his children to be kidnapped and to not bother ransoming them in order to stay in business, in order to prevent himself from other such attacks. I mean, this is a harsh and scary society to live in. It's fortunate for us then that we don't have to hear any more of this terrifying explanation of the government, because this is where the tape breaks off. Yeah, there's one more thing that I, I do want to talk about before we get to that next interrogation, which is that the police have Dr. Marsh's papers from Earth. Right? They have his official identification. Uh, and this prompts the interrogator to say, letters follow your name. I shall call you a Polish count, a Knight Grand Cross, RX and QED, Grand Master of the Blood Red Dirk and R-O-G-U-E. And this bit here is a quotation from the comic Almanac of 1841, which was a, a collection of humorous stories by some of the, the big writers of the mid-Victorian period, including William Thackeray, who wrote uh, Vanity Fair. And these stories are arranged as a calendar, as a, a book of days, which we know is exactly the sort of thing that Wolfe himself loves, right? His own Gene Wolfe's book of days, which uh, gets included in uh, Castle of Days. Uh, these things make that pretty clear. And these lines in particular come from a poem uh, on Twelfth Night, which is to say Epiphany in early January. Uh, and that is a date that is included in Gene Wolfe's Book of Days. And we will probably cover Wolfe's own story from that night at some point. That's the story La Bufana. And in the poem, these lines are spoken by an English scoundrel who claims to be a Polish count and then marries a, a modestly wealthy middle-aged woman named Miss Miffins uh, and then spends all of her money and then abandons her. And the purpose here is that the interrogator is indicating that he doesn't believe that Dr. Marsh is who he says he is, uh, that he is, in fact, a spy who is pretending to be an anthropologist from Earth. 
but also in this story, in VRT, just like in the comic Almanac, we've met a scoundrel who claims to be a type of nobility that he really isn't. And, and that is VRT's father, who claims to be the last king of the Abbos. So I you know, think Wolf here is subtly reinforcing our suspicions that Trenchard is just a con man and that we can't take anything he says as having any resemblance to truth or had to have any claim on authority. Okay, now it is time for the second of these interviews, though we see quite quickly that this is in fact the first interrogation of Dr. Marsh. His interrogator is a man named Constant. Uh, We learn some basic facts here about Dr. Marsh's time in this planetary system. He spent about four years on St. Anne and has been on San Croix for another year or so. And we also learned that the university here in Port Mimizan is aware of his situation and is not going to help him. Most of this conversation is a narrative by Dr. Marsh of his time on St. Anne. Um, and so I'll reconstruct that for us here. He splashed down in the ocean outside of Roncevaux and then went through customs and was granted papers by the military police. In Roncevaux, he visited the university and its museum, and from there, he took a train to Frenchman's Landing, which is about 500 kilometers up the coast from Roncevaux. Yeah, during this interrogation, we see uh, a few things. One is the uh, incredulity with which the questioner engages with Dr. Marsh. This is, once again, just uh, an absolute nightmare to read. I'm glad it's written in dialogue form, though, because it makes for quick reading. Um, and that's one of the features, the technical features of this story, is that Wolf is really controlling the pace of the reader. And I just think it's great. We also see Dr. Marsh's kind of glimmer of hope. He still has some fight in him. He attacks the museum on San Croix. Um, but everything he says is being questioned. If he speaks in by saying... He thinks of time as being in St. Anne years because he was there for five years. That's an attack. That's a clue to his guilt in some way for the interrogator. Um, but we also see certain types of language being told, being used by the interrogator. When Marsh describes Frenchman's Landing, the interrogator says, I am told it is a city set in a swamp. This, to me, is language you would only use if you yourself are afraid of being accused of a crime. And so you have to pretend to be ignorant of what would be obvious facts. Anybody would know quite a lot, I think, about these splashdown sites if history is being maintained in any way on either of these sister planets. And it just jumps out to me that this interrogator himself is under the eye of the government and can't and has to speak in a way that protects his innocence at all times as well. And I just, I love the way Wolf has woven that into this interrogation. Again, as you pointed out earlier, the government here on San Croix prides itself on its mastery of manipulating language. And this interrogator, Constant, is doing that here as well. In fact, even when he tells Dr. Marsh that the university is not going to help him. He never actually says that. He says two statements of fact and lets Marsh infer that, but he himself has never actually made any claim about what the university's uh, actions are or intentions are at all. He is extraordinarily careful, as if he is a lawyer as much as an interrogator. In the course of this questioning about his time on St. Anne, Dr. Marsh comments that servants here on St. Croix all seem to be slaves, which is not the case on St. Anne. And this prompts Constant to tell us a little about the history of St. Croix and St. Anne and why their societies are so different. The twin planets remained unknown even when other, more distant planets had already been colonized for decades Both planets were originally found and settled by the French, who later lost a war when English speakers came. We had figured that out for ourselves already. After the war, the English-speaking military commander on Saint-Croix decreed that every conquered French person would be compelled to rebuild the buildings and other infrastructure that were destroyed during the war. But he also allowed them to purchase exemptions, which was uh, part of a plan to tie the aristocracy and the bourgeoisie to their new conquerors. 
And the commander also allowed continuity in civil administration at both the regional and the local level. So he only replaced the French government at the central, at the, the planetary level. And these moves created a new blended power structure atop a labor force that's composed of poor and middling French people who've been enslaved by the conquerors. And after a while, uh, we learn, it became necessary to find other sources of slaves to keep this system going, and they turned to criminals and orphans. And so, over the years, the slave caste itself has lost its exclusively French character. On St. Anne, however, the English-speaking conquerors oppressed the French population at every level. Uh, They turned them into a subject population who bitterly hate their oppressors. And Constant even described St. Anne as a camp armed against itself, where a colossal military establishment threatened citizens of every class. Constant goes on to defend San Croix's slavery by saying that most of the inhabitants of San Croix are free, and of course, slaves are well taken care of because they are, after all, the financial investments of their owners. On St. Anne, and even on Earth, most people are slaves, though, of course, they're not actually called that. Uh, indeed, the workers on Earth and St. Anne are treated worse than the slaves on San Croix because, for example, if they fall ill, they're simply left to their own devices, where on San Croix, of course, they're going to be well taken care of by their masters. And later in this conversation, Constant will go on to say that it is only by possessing slaves that any man can be truly free. When Dr. Marsh objects by saying that he believes that most of the governments on Earth have programs to provide medical care for the people, Constant simply says, then you see who their owners are. But Constant also points out that this is something that Dr. Marsh should know if he's actually from Earth, not something that he should believe as if he's acquired this knowledge through reading. And here, Marsh offers the flimsy or perhaps sarcastic excuse that, well, He was never sick on Earth, so he doesn't know that much about it. We'll be talking quite a bit about this theory of slavery, of what makes a slave a slave, what makes a man free in our discussion. So I don't want to dig in too much right now um, because it's such a big topic. And this is such an odd justification for slavery. And I think we'll have a lot to talk about. And I have some thoughts about um, what Wolf is doing here, maybe even theologically on some level, how Catholic theology could play a part into this. But it does seem to me as, as Marsh is at least the adversary of the questioner. And because slavery is such an abomination to, to many of us today, that we're supposed to be taking Marsh's side on some of these comments. And Marsh kind of argues with the questioner. And what prompts this discussion of slavery is Marsha's statement that uh, the questioner was telling him that it was better to be a slave on St. Croix than to be free on St. Anne. And the justification is that all men everywhere else are slaves because their masters are hidden. And that the slaves on St. Croix, while they're slaves, at least they know who their masters are. And I just think that that is an interesting twist on the problem. I'm looking forward to digging in on this in the discussion. So Constant gets the conversation back on track, and he can get us back on track here, too. Uh, We're going to get more of Marsh's account of his time on St. Anne. And and the first thing that Dr. Marsh says here uh, may also call into question his true identity. Uh, First, he lost his taped conversations while he was in the field, uh, the back of beyond, Uh, But also, he explains that uh, he was in the field with a guide. And we know that this is VRT, or the boy. But here, Dr. Marsh calls VRT a local man I employed to assist me. Uh, It's a small thing, this discrepancy between boy and man, but it may become consequential if our suspicions are correct. And it is certainly convenient that uh, all known audio recordings of Dr. Marsh's voice have disappeared. And another employment of language here that really jumps out at me is that this prisoner, Dr. Marsh, as we know him now, refers to the Abos as the free people once again. And that is something that only VRT has done in this story so far. He mentions the free people when he talks about 
what he did in the back of beyond. He tells us that he remained in the field for three years. He spent the summers in the temporal mountains, and then he would go spend the winters in the foothills. And this is the same thing that many of the free people did as well. And we get a note here that Dr. Marsh has given several public lectures at the university. And so he seems to be telling everyone that he found abos and lived with them and followed their semi-migratory patterns. Uh, We also learn here that at some point during those three years, VRT died. We don't learn how, we don't learn when, but this seems rather significant, and I have to believe we're going to get more about this in a later section. When Dr. Marsh left the field, he, he never returned to Frenchman's Landing. But rather, he went to the city of Lyon, which is a, a city much further down the coast. Uh, this is uh, another real town in France. And Constant is curious about why Dr. Marsh didn't return to Frenchman's Landing to notify the Trenchards that, that VRT had died in person rather than sending them a, a radiogram. But Dr. Marsh explains that he didn't want to backtrack. He wanted to go see new territory on St. Anne. Moreover, Dr. Marsh doesn't think that VRT's family really cared about the death. And this is really important. So we should just read the text. Uh, and we should note that Constant indicates that Dr. Marsh is angry when he delivers these lines. Dr. Marsh says, My assistant's family, for which you feel this tender concern, consisted exclusively of his father, a dirty, drunken beggar. His mother had fought free of her husband years before. And obviously, this language is not disinterested in this family situation at all. Right. It feels so personal, the way this is delivered. And when we see in the journals, Dr. Marsh kind of having a laugh at the situation and taking it in in good faith and having fun, and it's part of his field experience, this type of animosity could not have arisen in the time he spends with Trenchard at all. And and even the the language isn't right. Uh, Dr. Marsh writes in his St. Anne Journal that he actually doesn't believe that Trenchard is a drunkard, even though everyone is telling him that constantly. So something else would have had to have happened for him to have changed his mind about that. But by the admission of this conversation, he never sees Trenchard again. So that can't have happened. So something is very fishy here. All right, well, we can, we can return now to Dr. Marsh's account. So from Léon, he returned to Roncevaux, where he stayed for a year. During that time, he audited several courses in the graduate school, and he tried in vain to interest people in his findings. Uh, he had almost no luck with that, because everyone at the museum, the University of Roncevaux, uh, is convinced that the free people are extinct. And, and again, he says free people, not Annies or Abos. And he also indicates that part of what he is telling people in Roncevo isn't just that the free people, the Abos, still exist, but that they should be granted human rights. Uh, so again, this seems like this might be VRT speaking rather than Dr. Marsh. One thing we didn't mention explicitly before is that uh, Trenchard gives us a reason why the Abos aren't or couldn't be given human rights. It's a problem of land deeds. If all of a sudden they had rights, they could go to a farm and say, this was my family's land, you have to give it back, and a kind judge might be forced to offer it to them. It also is another reason why they might be extinct, because because as was discussed in Fifth Head of Cerberus, the abos being human is only interesting if they're all dead. The abos could have been killed simply because they represented a threat to the new status quo of the humans on the planet. And so it would just be easier for them to be viewed as animals, which they may have been, to be shot, and then to just be left to die. But the fact that even the story that we get of the father shooting the Abo children that his daughter used to play with earlier on, and that no bones were buried or found, and she couldn't recall anything. All of this is just still up in the air and full of questions of the existence of Abos at all in the first place. Dr. Marsh also says here 
uh, that the free people, the the abos, uh, were not a Paleolithic culture, and that is a huge part of why he runs into this resistance at the university in Roncevaux, uh, because he's arguing that the free people are a dendritic culture, or maybe even a pre-dendritic culture. Uh, dendritic uh, means related to trees, and presumably here it means that uh, they use wood for building and, and for tools rather than stone. Uh, but he may also mean something else by it, as we've seen in a story. It's a very confusing language. A dendritic culture is not really something that exists in anthropological terms. And so we have this person creating their own terminology uh, at this point. And we've seen already in the stories about the Abos in VRT that they would sometimes be a man and sometimes be hardwood. So this notion of dendritic could also be that they're descended from trees in some way. Though I think putting it in terms of paleolithic versus dendritic, you're probably right. But there's some slippage, I think, going on here as well. Yes, it definitely is meaning both things, or at least Wolf is playing with that here, if if the person being interrogated here is not. And Dr. Marsh here also tells us one more detail about what life was like for him in Roncevaux. Uh, He says that he took up smoking, he gained about five pounds, and he also found a great barber for his beard, all of which is to say that he looks different and he has different habits than he did the last time he had been in Roncevaux. So again, the evidence is mounting that uh, this might not be Dr. Marsh, but might in fact be VRT or, or even perhaps somebody else masquerading as Dr. Marsh. And the interrogation shifts now to Dr. Marsh's time in Port Mimizon. Dr. Marsh, of course, enjoys the Maison du Chien. I mean, he is young and he has desires like other men. And he also found the owner unusual. Most medical men seem to employ their skill mostly to prolong the lives of ugly women. But the master of the Maison du Chien has found better things to do with his skills. And now Constant reveals the field guide to the animals of St. Anne, this copy of the book that Dr. Marsh had with him. And he explains the interest of the numbers written on the flyleaf. And he explains that uh, this table shows how to accurately shoot a target at various ranges between 50 to 600 yards. And moreover, he thinks that Dr. Marsh intended to use this table in order to assassinate someone by shooting him or her at a long range range. And more still, Constant believes that Dr. Marsh's St. Anne journal is a tissue of fabrications, that this journal that we have been reading about Dr. Marsh's experiences on St. Anne is all made up. Uh, And he even uses against Dr. Marsh some of the clever naming that you and I have talked about in previous episodes. He points out that the clothier is named Coulot, which is a type of pants in French. Uh, It points out that the name of the medical doctor, Dr. Hagsmith, which we spent a long time talking about, could also describe the very activity that Marsh just described medical doctors doing. He's he's prolonging the lives of ugly women, that the meaning of Hagsmith is someone who makes old women. And Constant also notes that Dr. Marsh is using his beard to hide his appearance, Finally, when he came out from the back of beyond, some of the equipment that Dr. Marsh sold was suspiciously new, including a pair of boots that had never been worn in the three years that he claims to have lived in the wilderness. This is fantastic. These are just, this is just one nail in the coffin after the other. The thing that jumps out to the reader, I think, shouldn't be the clever naming conventions, because we talked a lot about names and naming conventions in the past two novellas as well. It's no indication of guilt in my mind. The boots are a little suspicious. But the most important piece of evidence here for me is that when the charges are being leveled that he is going to, that Dr. Marsh is going to assassinate someone, he says that he's not a good shot. And we know that VRT is a terrible shot, that he has no idea how guns work. And that contrary to VRT's being a bad shot, Dr. Marsh is an excellent shot once he gets his bearings. I also love the way that Dr. Marsh 
the prisoner tries to defend himself here by saying that he hasn't even tried to apply for a permit for a gun, nor does he have any intention to. And the interrogator responds by saying, we apprehended you too soon. Do you expect to quote our own efficiency against us? I mean, this is just a nightmare world that they're living in. Yeah, I mean, right. You you can't even defend yourself in the system by saying, no, the, the crime you were actually accusing me of hasn't been committed by anyone. And to have that turned around and say, yes, but it's only because we've already arrested you for it. I mean, this is this is the stuff that nightmares are made of. I mean, this is the totalitarian dystopia that people in the, the mid 20th century were really worried about. Well, we are nearly done with recapping today, but we have one more section. Uh, But even before we get to that, first, we have a small interlude with the frame narrative. The officer who is going through these tapes and documents is washing himself following his sex with uh, Casilla. Uh, This is something he is really meticulous about. Uh, And indeed, he even has a, a special perfumed soap that he uses only for this type of washing. And I'll just tease a little bit here by saying that this is a detail in the story that Mark Aramini makes a pretty big deal of. And we're going to get to hear some more about that when we have our conversation with him in just a few episodes. I'm very excited about that because some of these interjections seem meaningful and some just seem like Wolf needs to change the type of document that's being read and we're tracking in the mind of somebody who's switching between a couple different tasks. And we still don't even have his orders of why he's doing this officially. So there's still a lot up in the air and hopefully through this frame story, all of the frame will be pulled together. Well, for now, we are very near the end of the recap. So we return for just one page to Dr. Marsh's prison journal His captors have brought him more paper and and even some candles to provide light to write by. He says that at first he thought that they would read whatever he wrote, but he has discovered that they never mention anything from this journal in his interrogations, and he thinks it means that they just can't read his awful handwriting. And this prompts a meditation on why his handwriting is so bad which he says is simply because he can't hold a pen properly. As a child, he was beaten for being unable to write, and he worked very hard to learn how to do it by holding the pen a different way. And he thinks also about his mother, who would have to wash the blood out of his clothes, which meant walking upstream for hours to get away from the sewers. And of course, this detail does not at all seem like the experience of someone who grew up in New York City, as Dr. Marsh did, but it does seem like the experience of someone growing up in Frenchman's Landing. Right. And we have explicitly in the text here that he is dropping the facade a little bit, marshes at least. The fact that he does no longer believes that anybody is reading what he's writing because they're never referred to in the interrogations is allowing him to begin to tell the truth to himself, as we see the narrator of Fifth Head of Cerberus doing. Dr. Marsh, or the prisoner, says here that in the beginning, as he was writing these, he was very careful and wrote only what he believed would help his case. I think now he believes his case is hopeless. And so that's why I'm saying the facade is dropping. I think that's absolutely right. And I have to imagine that this is going to come into play as we get more entries here, and maybe especially as we start to really think about who is the author of A Story by John V. Marsh. So there's just now one last thing to recount before we wrap up this episode. This part of the journal concludes with a few sentences about Dalo's Law, something uh, that is prompted by his thinking about his inability to hold a pen properly. Dalo's Law is a rule about the process of evolution, which was postulated by the Belgian paleontologist Louis Dalo in 1893. And put simply, Dalo's law is that organisms never follow the same evolutionary path twice. And the way Dr. Marsh puts it here, it is that when an organism loses an organ, stops producing eyes or legs or kidneys or something, the organ never reappears, even if the species returns to a mode of life in which that vestigial organ had an important function. 
Instead, the organism will develop a new organ that is a substitute for the old, but not precisely the same thing. And we are left wondering what the connection is between this and Dr. Marsh's very bad handwriting. That is going to conclude our discussion as well, this question. So I think that's going to do it for this episode. We have a bunch of stay tunes, I think, for our discussion episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you think of this section of the story. There is a lot in here, I think, that we're not going to hit in our discussion episode, primarily because there's so much information. So I really want to take this opportunity to invite all of our listeners to the forum if they haven't visited it and talk about what you see in this section that we didn't bring up because I don't think we hit on everything. I also want to thank you again for getting us to our first Patreon goal. It really means the world to us and makes this project feel very rewarding, both I think to myself and for Glenn as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so excited that we have this opportunity to go record more content for our supporters. We're going to have a lot of fun recording those extra bonus episodes. But next time here, we'll be back with a discussion of this section of VRT. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.